Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Though it lasted for only a brief period, the Gurid dynasty provides a fascinating lens through which to consider the religious and political forces that shaped South and Central Asia during the medieval period. Our guest today is Alka Patel, who has spent years in the region examining architectural structures and archival materials to help better understand the Gurids. The Gurids were situated between the Persianate and Indic worlds and straddled and connected the traditions of Islamic and Hindu cultures. This year, Alka Patel is a fellow at the National Humanities Center and is writing what she describes as an architectural biography. In this work, she closely examines the archaeological remnants of the Gurid dynasty to explore how their brief, pivotal moment in the history of Central Asia helped inform life in the region for centuries to come. Alka, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. More about who they were and where they were active and when. They were most likely a group of nomads who were a part of a larger nomadic culture in what is now the very center of the country of Afghanistan. It's an unknown area, really not sort of fully documented, and was such also historically. And really it was an unknown and continues to be an unknown area. How did you become interested in this work? Mainly, it was on the India side, so to speak. Um, Their architectural patronage in northern India involves a lot of reused architectural components. And um, these components were then used in the construction of mosques, since they were at least nominally Muslims. Interestingly, or or fascinatingly, really, these buildings have come to be used in modern-day political debates and, in fact, have been thought of as this retroactive evidence in favor of the partition of the subcontinent in the mid-20th century. I want to stay for a moment on this, on the architectural um, piece. And you talk about a genre that you call architectural biography, We usually tend to think of biographies as being about people or maybe animals, but not necessarily about static objects or buildings. So help us understand what it means in your case to do architectural biography on these structures that remain from the Gurids. Well, I think that it is really a field of study that is uh, perhaps ideal for art and architectural historical methods. So the tools of style and iconography really help us identify architecture from comparisons, for example, as belonging to a certain time period. And in turn, if we can place them temporally, they can also help elucidate the transition of a nomadic community from a subsistence economy into one of surplus. Um, And the biography part really is that, you know, architecture is, as we know, stationary. At least buildings are built in one place, even though the ideas that emerge from them uh, can indeed be conveyed over distances. But really buildings are the result of many ideas and people over time, really a convergence. So the analysis, both stylistic as well as 
uh, social historical can really help elucidate the life of a place or a region. So I think there are really these matrices where a lot of factors uh, converge. Your methods straddle many different fields, and you interpret architecture and objects, you look at textual sources, and you even look at ethnographic sources. Can you talk to us a bit more about your sources and what you're learning from them using these approaches? Well, for one thing, nomads have had a very bad reputation, and I use the word nomad very loosely because there isn't just one kind of nomad. In fact, it's agreed that you know uh, mobile populations are anywhere on uh, this this continuum of nomadism and urbanism. Nomads really, nevertheless, have received a bad reputation in historical textual sources, and they're notoriously hard to find in archaeology precisely because they don't tend to build monumentally. So I've found that ethnographic studies and anthropological fieldwork among modern nomads is extremely important uh, and with, you know, of course, very important caveats in mind, uh, I think that uh, modern observations can at least provide us with parallels as to how historically a nomadic society uh, not only was, but how it changed. How do the Gurids fit in with standard accounts of empire, and how do they push back or challenge those accounts? I think that empires there seems to be perhaps a preconceived notion that empires are uh, top-down, so to speak, that they're the result of some kind of preformed idea or something of a foregone conclusion that is imposed on others. But the study, certainly, of nomadic elites and nomadic empires, I think, is the best demonstration of the reality, in fact, that empires are contingent. They're actually formed according to very specific historical circumstances. So um, whatever kind of preconceived notions, again, we might have of a center and a periphery and an imperial court and everybody else, in fact, um, uh, not all or even many empires historically really looked like that. So these different sources and approaches and certainly the different types of elites that these folks constituted compared to the majority of scholarship on imperial formations through history, I think it just sheds light on how empires really were the result of happenstance. Mm -hmm. And that there's not just one formation that would lead to empire. Yes or one model. So in order to follow these nomadic peoples, you've done a lot of field work and you've been to lots of different places. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you've been, what you're looking at, and what kinds of things you've found? Well, my field work, certainly just for this project, um, and then I've done some other work, and that, by the way, is just methodologically fundamental for me, is that it's very hard to talk about or think about fully an object or a building, so the object writ large, without actually being in its presence, without seeing it for myself. So for the current um, book project, I've I've over the years, done much field work in, in India, of course, but 
Uh, fortunately, I was also able to document historical structures in Pakistan and Afghanistan and in Iran. And I have to say, I mean, perhaps this is something that's becoming clear from my previous uh, comments. You know, the past has never really passed. I think that becomes very clear when one actually sees either ruins or constantly renovated structures, both, in fact, in a landscape indicate that the past continues to live. So the people you examine are fascinating and their architecture is beautiful, complex, sophisticated, some of it still standing and being used. And yet they've been fairly neglected by historians and art historians. Why do you think they've been overlooked? Well, I suppose um, a bit of a, a reverse approach to how I um, responded to your previous question. I think it's very clear that the present impacts the study of the past so that really events from very recent history can impact the way that scholarship takes shape. I think uh, logically this particular um, polity would very much be the material of study for, let's say, the scholarship on the Islamic world, and also because of the great impact that it had over time on the region of South Asia in particular. But Islamic studies or, or studies of the history and the overall um, trajectory of the Islamic world through time has become something of, and, and it's definitely reforming, if I can say, but it's become uh, perhaps almost a place where smaller or seemingly less consequential state formations um, often don't really get the attention they deserve because they were not Islamic enough or imperial enough, speaking of those preconceived notions of empire. And in the case of South Asia studies, again, with the memories of the partition lingering on, really this social and state formation has been lumped together with the many other Islamic political formations that have been really a part of the historical fabric, certainly of the northern subcontinent, um, for over a millennium. So on both sides, they seem to fall through the proverbial cracks. And some narratives would also have us believe that Muslims historically destroyed the Hindu temples, right? very political claim. How does your study push up against that? As I mentioned before, in fact, uh, growing up in post-partition India, these narratives are never really far from one's consciousness. I mean, as a small child, I remember being aware of, in simple attitudes or gestures, you know, these kinds of fissures in uh, the larger country that were in place. For me, I think it was perhaps an act of, uh, I don't know, youthful rebellion or really wanting to get at the reality of this thing because I realized, in fact, that the language that I spoke, the food that I ate, um, had so many words, language-wise, words that came from Arabic and Persian. So how is it that we're so neatly dividing up this, this huge 
nation that that has such a sizable um, Muslim population and many, many different kinds of Muslims. It's been something that is really at the back of my mind continually, but when I engage with architectural analysis, I see just in the mode of actual manufacture that there had to have been a continued patronage, really, of the skilled labor that was available to these newcomers as they were building a state, eventually an empire for themselves. And in fact, even with the dismantling of previous structures and their reuse in later ones, you had to have an expert hand. So both ways, both for constructing as well as deconstructing, really the the centuries-old skilled labor that had developed and the ways of making buildings that were in place had to be mobilized. Mm-hmm. And so those skills are inscribed in the structures that you look at. Yes, yes, both in their dismantling mm-hmm. as well as in new constructions. That's fascinating. How would our listeners be able to see and picture some of the structures that you look at in this study? I think maybe folks have something of an idea uh, that comes to mind when one says Islamic architecture. Um, but I think it's important to realize that just as there are so many different Islams in the world that are inflected regionally, there are regional traditions of Islamic architecture that really differ among themselves. And so if I wanted to evoke an image specifically of the the buildings that I have been fascinated with for a long time now, Um, First of all, I'd say that they were very lofty structures made of brick. They have these airy, high elevations on the inside. There's quite a bit of decoration, certainly with stucco, which would have been painted originally, and also polychrome tiles, glazed tiles, that uh, could have been used, for instance, to emphasize the calligraphy or the inscriptions that are part of the surface decorative program. And uh, in some ways, it's, it's a bit paradoxical, but when one goes actually among the, the remnants of these structures, they really do um, require a lot of maintenance. I mean, that's something I think that really speaks to this idea of architectural biography also, is that in order to help a building continue to have a life, it requires constant engagement. However, in places like Afghanistan, where there's just been a lot of destruction, really in recent decades, because of uh, instability, uh, political and otherwise, one sees that these buildings essentially, without that continual maintenance, really melt. And that's really how archaeologists describe them, as, oh, there was a huge area of mud melt. Because oftentimes the bricks were not even baked bricks. They might have been simply sun-dried bricks, or for very large um, fortifications and walls, it would be rammed earth which then would be veneered with something that was supposed to help it weather the elements a little better. And in fact, uh, the stucco and certainly the tile were something of a protective 
layer on these internal cores. But once that starts deteriorating, moisture and the elements get in and I think very quickly make a, a structure deteriorate. So from this grand loftiness of beautiful tile and stucco and painted decoration to, you know, mud melt, I mean, it took many centuries, but I think, I think one can still get a sense of the grandeur that was intended, even though a lot of these structures and complexes are in parts of the world that have seen just a lot of disturbance and a lot of destruction. Alka, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center. <laughs>